0: This podcast is supported by VPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Steve Oates, the CEO of the Heritage Railway Association in the UK. The Heritage Railway Association is the UK-wide trade association and professional support body for the heritage rail sector representing, protecting, and promoting the interests of heritage and tourist railways, related museums, tramways, cliff railways, railway preservation groups, and related organisations. Welcome to the show, Steve.
1: Thank you. Thanks very
2: much. Steve, could you give our listeners a brief outline of your background and experience in two minutes or less?
1: Uh Okay. Um, I've had quite a varied career. Um, I'm actually a qualified professional chartered surveyor uh, who then went into commercial radio. I spent 20 years in commercial radio, built three commercial radio stations from the ground upwards um, in uh, in the south coast of England. Uh, I then uh, decided to go out on my own for a short while, ran a small marketing company, then headed up an economic development department for a local authority in the public sector. And I'm now chief exec of the Heritage Railway Association. However, alongside all of that, uh, I have been an active volunteer and participant in Heritage Rail since the age of 13 in the 1970s. And uh, that's at one particular railway, the Isle of Wight Steam Railway at the Isle of Wight, just off the south coast of England, uh, which is where I was born and brought up. Um, So although I don't live on the island anymore, uh, I'm still very active with the Isle of Wight Steam Railway. Two key roles at the moment, (coughs) I'm on the board of trustees and directors, uh, but I also undertake footplate duties on a voluntary basis, um, firing locomotives from time to time when I can, uh, when I can get across there to do it.
0: You've definitely got the voice for radio, Steve. I could, um, I could hear that in your voice as soon as we started talking.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> now, um, could you just please explain a little bit about the HRA, um, who the membership is, and the diversity of the different transport options involved?
1: Um, The HRA, the Heritage Railway Association, uh, was actually originally formed uh, in the mid-70s and for many, many years, uh, in fact for most of its life, entirely voluntary run. And it was effectively set up back in the sort of the the halcyon days of getting heritage railways underway uh, because it was recognised there was a need for a body, albeit voluntary for many years, as I said, a body to support the growth of heritage railways, Uh, to speak with government on behalf of the sector, to speak with uh, regulators, media, and so on, and and other bodies. And uh, some, you know, very experienced, skilled, talented people uh, operated and ran the HRA on a purely voluntary basis. Um, However, probably 10, 15 years ago, um, fair to say, I was going to use the phrase lost its way. That's not quite right, but Heritage Railways had... In the UK had started maturing um, at quite a fast rate um while still very much focused on their heritage and the preservation access uh, uh, activities and so on at the end of the day they're also visitor attractions they're commercial um some of the largest heritage railways in the UK employ well over 100 people and season seasonally it could be 200 people when you're adding in all the seasonal staff and so on so um you know, these are, these are large multi-million pound businesses, and it was decided about five years ago that its trade body needed to, uh, I suppose, reinvent itself, professionalise. And uh, it took on its first member of staff, which was me. Uh, there's now two of us, and in fact, in a couple of weeks' time, there'll be three of us. Uh, so we're actually quite a small organisation, but we have a very big impact and uh, our membership is about 170 operational railways, heritage tramways, uh, cliff railways or funicular railways as, as they're um, specifically known, plus a, a large number of related steam centres, museums, and um, a, a very sizable number of rolling stock ownership groups, you know, groups that own locomotives and, and carriages and, and wagons and so on. And uh, so we're with the UK trade body, supporting, encouraging and promoting Heritage Rail across the UK, and we have members right across the UK: England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. The vast majority of heritage and minor railways are members of the HRA. There's still one or two uh, not in the membership, and I'm trying hard to get them get them involved. Uh, But you know, we're involved in a wide range of activities, from from lobbying government to providing business support to our members, to just shouting the value of heritage railways to the to the visitor economy, to the tourism sector.
2: Steve, the the sector contributes a a, a, a very um a very um considerable amount to the uk economy i'm sure how many people are how many staff are employed full time and what are the volunteer numbers with uh, all the all the bodies that are in the hra
1: uh well you, the uk heritage rail sector I, I think i think i'm correct in saying that the uk has more heritage railways tramways and cliff railways than any other country uh in the world so we're, we're a fairly sizable sector um these numbers might have changed a little bit although i don't actually think so um because of covid and we haven't uh, updated our previous survey with that that'll be happening over the next month or so uh, to get uh, up to up-to-date numbers post uh, post covid um but the estimates uh or what was based um, on a couple of years ago, um, 4,000 employed staff across the sector, uh, uh, plus a number of seasonal staff, obviously during the the summer months, around 22,000 active volunteers across the sector. uh, And our net worth to the UK economy is about half a billion pounds. That last figure, I actually think, underestimates it. And uh, I'm very keen to get a more up-to-date economic impact Survey because what that uh, doesn't include is uh, is all of the value, uh, the PR value of things like Flying Scotsman and so on, which is a which is a global icon and how that is used to uh, promote the UK globally, particularly the UK visitor economy. Um, the 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 figure also doesn't include for all the all the mainline steam tours and so on. So I suspect the heritage rail sector's value is is quite a lot more than that figure. But still, that's a pretty respectable figure and shows the importance of Heritage Rail to the visitor economy across the UK. And in fact, that's also shown by the fact that Heritage Railways are visited by some 13, one, three million visitors each year.
0: They're incredible numbers Steve I, I didn't have any idea that it was that big what what are the actual numbers or do you, I'm not sure if you've got those numbers but how many passengers would that be across all of the HR member services
1: uh right um oh i should have had that figure uh right in front of me i think Bullpack, it's something, of <laughs> I, I think it's something like well passenger journeys As i said there's 13 million visitors not all of those visitors will necessarily take a train ride because of course some heritage railways have additional activities and and facilities uh, but the vast majority um, do travel on the trains um and in terms of passenger journeys uh the latest the last figure from a a couple of years ago i believe the passenger journeys were about 18.3 million passenger journeys are taken uh, across a year on on uk heritage rail thanks for the support from ratio consultants who provide high quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning transport economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning-related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details.
2: Steve, the uh, the UK gave the world trains and now it leads the world in preserved railways. Do you, do you think that's a fair comment? And, and to follow up that, what makes the UK such a fertile environment for the strength of heritage transport, do you think? Is it something to do with the wacky uh, British personality or uh, w- there's a few few questions there, forgive me uh-huh.
1: uh, That's going to be interesting to answer isn't it, um, well as you started by saying, the UK gave the world railways and in fact we're only four years off the 200th anniversary of the world's first passenger train which was in September 1825 Um I'm, I'm not. I'm not a historian or a cultural historian, which can wax lyrical about why it was the UK that effectively drove uh, global industrialization and globalisation and so on. But for whatever reason, it was, uh, and a huge part of the growth uh, um, across the world, but starting in Britain, you know, was the advent of coal mining and the development of steam power in a variety of forms and then steam traction, moving out onto the railways. And this really drove industrialization and globalization and a massive change in society. That's 200 years ago and, and, and across, you know, what in the UK was known as Victorian times across the 19th century, you know, the, the, uh, across the 1800s. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think Brits have always liked to preserve things not everybody I and mean, some people you know can take it or leave it but I think Brits through history have always liked to preserve things whether that's art or song or culture or bits and pieces or artifacts and so on uh, and I think that that has just continued and the interesting thing about railways in the UK at their height There was, what was the figure, 21, 22,000 miles of railways around the UK. And what is, you know, by comparison to other countries around the world, quite a small landmass. But they were enjoyed, they were essential, they were, uh, they gave people opportunities, travel for leisure, travel for business, for transporting um, goods and services and so on. And so there's, whilst, at the end of the day, sometimes a bit scruffy and ill-kept and so on, there was always been a fondness for them. And some people became very fond of particular lines and preservation of heritage railways, of a heritage railway started 70 years ago this year, uh, in May uh, 1951, when uh, a group of people who were very fond of a little narrow gauge line in West Wales, in Northwest Wales, the Lynn Railway, Uh, worked hard to preserve it, to save it, and to reopen it, and actually to run it as a viable passenger service. Um, The Talithin Railway, 70 years on, is a vibrant little narrow-gauge railway, uh, and that started preservation of heritage rail across the world, in fact. Um, It was also the subject of a film, which a lot of people... Uh, well, it wasn't the subject of the film, but a film which a lot of people know about, um, uh, was uh, was was based on, <laughs> or loosely based on, that sort of preservation ideal. Uh, the Titfield Thunderbolt, which is a very famous uh, Ealing comedy uh, made in the 1950s, there was just this fondness and so on. Um, and as well as rowers, as you say, uh, Brits have loved to preserve cars, vintage and classic cars, still do traction engines, canal boats, heritage, uh, uh, maritime steamers, and so on and so forth. There is just this ideal of preserving a bit from the past and a pleasure in still owning and operating <clears throat> these, uh, these artifacts, whether it's, you know, something quite small, like a you know, vintage bicycle or so on, up to a, a mainline steam locomotive. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly in the UK, there there is a huge fondness but doing that, and of course, in a lot of circumstances, and Heritage Rail is a prime example, they have become businesses and successful commercial businesses. And that preservation ideal continues, but within a commercial context.
0: Steve, in terms of those preserved lines um, that you're talking about, have, has there been any investigation or research, I guess, done into the impacts um, in terms of the local and international tourism that they attract?
1: Uh, well, only up to a point, as I say, because I, I've got that figure of, of, of the economic impact of Heritage Rail on the UK economy, and, and it is something I'm, I'm actively focusing on, uh, actually undertaking a much more detailed uh, economic and social impact study, uh, <clears throat> because to actually look at not only an up to date figure of its impact on the UK, on the UK tourism but there are aspects of heritage railways that are used as icons sometimes to promote the UK. I mentioned Flying Scotsman earlier earlier on, Um, uh, and uh, if uh, globally people are aware of Harry Potter and the Harry Potter films, you know, the Hogwarts Express, um, you know, a, a steam locomotive and train Largely filmed, well filmed in a variety of locations on at Dothland Station on the North York Moors Railway, and of course famously on the Glenfinnan Viaduct on the uh, on the West Coast uh, line in Scotland, the uh, Fort William to Malague line. You know these are global icons, and well, it's maybe not current now because global tourism is is obviously at a low, uh, but certainly pre-pandemic, the uh, the um, Glenfinnan Viaduct and steam train across the Glenfinnan Viaduct, uh, viaduct uh, was on the front banner of the Visit Scotland website. It was one of the main items on that website. So, steam and heritage rail is used to promote the UK globally, and of course, because globally, so much steam and railway engineering and infrastructure was. Uh, exported from the uk, you know, there's, there's there's British built locomotives across the world. So again, there is a fondness for that UK steam and an interest in it. So from that point of view, yeah, it, it does help to put uh, to put the UK on the map.
2: And, and Steve, in terms of not just the international tourism but the local tourism, some towns and smaller regions must benefit greatly from the old preserve lines.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, The majority, the vast majority of UK heritage railways were in largely rural areas. And and that was just a a factor of preservation because when lines were closed, it was often the the more minor rural lines that were closed. Um, People came in to reopen them, protect them, open them as heritage railways and and so on and so forth. but as time has gone on, some of those rural areas have, have still grown and local towns and villages have grown into smaller towns and so on. So you take a number of railways, which were found to be economically unviable 50, 60, 70 years ago, are now massively economically viable. And sometimes the town or villages they're located in or which they pass through um, are made much more economically viable because of the Heritage Railway. Because if you take a, a railway such... Just the Swanage Railway, again, on the south coast of England, it attracts around 200,000 people. Um, now, Swanage is a, is a nice little seaside town with a, with a tourist industry, but massively boosted by that heritage railway. The North York Moors Railway is the largest visitor attraction in that part of, of Yorkshire, 350,000 visitors every year. You get a smaller railway, but still significant, like the Isle of Wight Steam Railway, which, as I say, I know very well, 110,000 visitors, you know, puts it right up there in the top two, three, four visitor attractions on the Isle of Wight, which is a major UK tourist destination. And it's another pull to that area. And, And this is repeated all over the Festiniog and Welsh Highland Railways. It's pretty widely known that if they disappeared tomorrow, that part of uh, Northwest Wales, economically, it would suffer massively. Um, There was large employment uh, in and around that railway and its engineering works, massive tourism pull and so on. And there was a great example. Well, I say a great example, a very very sad example, really. The Seven Valley Railway, a major UK heritage railway, when it had an embankment failure, Some years ago i can't remember how many years ago it was now 10 15 years ago uh, and obviously line had to be closed for some considerable time businesses in bridge north just closed closed for good um, you know because that was where their business was 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 coming from Uh, and in fact last year the festiniog in in northwest wales um, post COVID, in the in the limited amount of operation it could do um, during the between lockdowns in in two or three summer months it decided not to run the full length of its line up to Blino Festiniog. It went about halfway up the line to Tannibalch and, uh, and ran round and, and went back. Cafes and some shops and businesses in Blino Festiniog did not open because the trade wasn't coming into the town. That is the impact of a number of heritage railways in the UK. They are massive economic players um, in their local communities.
2: And, and, Steve, there's also the, the social um, value of all the volunteering, presumably, in the, the community building there. Uh, that must be a, a social, an incredible social good. And uh, I saw that a sign on the Wednesday, Wesley Dale Railway States, volunteer and start your life all over again. Is that a good rallying cry? And what can you what can you say of the volunteers
1: behind everything? Uh, volunteers come in all shapes and sizes. Um, the uh, an issue for heritage railways, and and this may be the case globally, is a lot of volunteers who started perhaps like I did, age thirteen, we're all a lot lot older now, and there is an issue about attracting younger volunteers i mean it's it's not desperate it's not a desperate situation but it is a serious situation we do have to have to attract more volunteers so that sort of um slogan rallying cry used by the wensleydale railway volunteer and start your life all over again i absolutely understand where that is coming from because why do people volunteer why do people volunteer on heritage heritage railways but you know why do they volunteer on anything frankly well often it's because You want to meet new people, make new friends, new social contacts, gives you something to do, get out in the fresh air, learn new skills, get new experience uh, and give something back. And in the UK, it's estimated that about nine or 10 million people volunteer regularly, not not just on Heritage Railways, but in all sorts of things, charities and all sorts of, of, of different things. And I know, and I know many people exactly the same as me, um, I've learned an enormous number of skills, both social um, skills. And, you know, I'm no engineer, but what engineering I know, I've learned from the Isle of Wight Steam Railway. Um, and I've learned to do things which actually my other paid for careers haven't taught me. Uh, and a good tranche of my friends are actually based in and around the Isle of Wight Steam Railway, you know, and there's people. Who I've known since I first joined there in the 1970s um, we're all a lot older now but you know we're all mates and I've known people uh, in a, a long long time and sometimes I think my career I think well I still know one or two people from 25 30 years ago when I built commercial radio stations but not like I do from the 1970s and 80s in my volunteering role on the Alawite steam railway so they make lifelong friendships and um, and uh, those sorts of relationships and so on uh, as i say you, you yeah do you start your life over all over again well I so say i was a teenager so i was still kicking off really but yeah i've seen i've seen retired people come in i've seen mid-age people come in and there is just this this enjoyment and this drive to learn something new and give something back and and make new friendships. So yeah, in some respects, yeah, you certainly do.
0: You provide a very compelling argument for volunteering. So um, that's really, really good to hear and uh, great to hear the the friendships that have been formed over the years. Um, One of the other things we wanted to talk about was the broad range of services um, that the HRA provides. So things like safety training, advocacy, liaison with network rail and support for planning related issues. Can you explain some of these services?
1: Um, yeah, uh, um, one of the key things that the HRA has done extremely well over the decades it's been in operation and, and say for, for most of its life, it was entirely volunteer run. But one area it drove very hard was safety and dealing with regulation uh you know in the uk heritage railways are regulated by what is now now known as the office of rail and road it it uh um, encompasses her majesty's railway inspectorate um and uh, that organization in various forms has has existed for 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 many many years um and safety and all those related issues is critical because a heritage railway at the end of the day in the uk while it May have a maximum speed of 25 miles an hour in every other respect it is the same as mainline operations and the regulator is the same the ORR regulate UK mainline rail and they regulate um, UK heritage railways and we have to run safely so over the years we've done a lot of work and provide a lot of guidance notes um, on all different aspects from competency to Basic understanding first aid to a very detailed set of notes on boilers, now known as the Boiler Code of Practice, which actually has widened from heritage rails onto steamships and traction engines and so on. But that was instigated by by the um, by the HRA. Um, there's guidance notes on legal issues, on governance, on employment issues, and so on. So those sorts of areas <coughs> are providing that sort of data, information, and guidance is central to uh, a, lot of, a lot of our work. Hand in hand with that is what I call business support, where um, we'll get uh, members, um, and it could be happening right now, it could be coming in on my email now, uh, a contact coming in via the website where somebody says, oh, we've got a problem with this level crossing. What, is there any guidance on this? Or what do you think? Or we have an issue relating to um, uh, governance or a legal issue. Uh, it could be a planning issue I mean it could be almost anything I mean one we had one one time was what do you know about photographic reproduction fees you know we can get asked all sorts of things and fortunately I don't have to answer them all myself I have a, a good range of specialist committees and skilled people from heritage railways um, you know so on the legal side and a, a committee a, um, our legal and parliamentary committee where there are lawyers or act, or, or retired lawyers who can answer a good number of these questions and um, engineers who who can answer relevant questions and so on and so forth. So we do get uh, quite a lot of queries and so on 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 what I call the business support side. Um,
0: Steve, just on that point, I know you just mentioned then um, some of the planning issues that do come up. What what kind of planning issues generally arise? Um,
1: Well, planning... um, in the UK in its widest form is everything you know is everything from just basic planning basic planning commission and so on so we do get queries about uh what uh, um what there are automatic rights for in the UK there's something called the national planning policy framework which in theory has simplified planning in the UK but some would dispute that as to whether it's not really any simpler um so fortunately we have a couple of people who uh have a lot of knowledge on the planning system and in fact from my own perspective because I originally trained and worked as a chartered surveyor, I used to do a bit many years ago used to do some planning work so I I have a pretty good understanding of the system we might get a a query come in where somebody will say uh, the local authority under their draft local plan is designating a huge tranche of land right next to our railway for a new residential estate what do we do Um, and now that's not from the perspective of necessarily objecting to that particular proposal but ensuring that it is known and written into the planning policy or to the draft plan that there is a heritage rail railway running by and that heritage railway will continue to run by and must not be seen as a potential nuisance so it may be that that sort of issue Um, the issue of um, smoke and emissions from steam locomotives they are covered under the Clean Air Acts in in the UK and the recent uh, Environment Bill, so it is a planning related issue, um, which we've uh, we've given quite a lot of uh, guidance on on recently. But in relation to planning, it can be it can be almost anything. From we want to build a new museum at our centre, or we need to build a new platform, or we need to extend the line, to wider issues. As I said, commenting on or giving guidance when planning authorities or or whatever are are, are considering. Um, you know much bigger projects and so on and and one which I've been involved with I gave evidence at the public inquiry because this is how far it went there is a proposal which has been on the blocks for actually for some years the Rother Valley Railway proposal to extend the Kent and East Sussex Railway uh, not too many miles only about three miles but to do so there's a requirement for compulsory purchase and the reason this is a potential um, you know, good potential project is it will connect the Kent and East Sussex Railway uh, potentially to the main line at Robertsbridge, thereby allowing a direct rail link from London, bringing more people into an area of outstanding natural beauty without having to use their cars and so on, and just opens up far more economic possibilities. But because there's compulsory purchase required it's gone through a public inquiry and in fact I was one of many people that gave evidence at the public inquiry back in the summer.
2: Steve I've got another planning question but before that I just wanted to something you mentioned about the services the HRA provide in my local steam preservation society to the Geelong and Bellarine um, society our our rosters and everything are on the hops system which I understand was developed by the HRA so your your body's work stretches all the other way across the world.
1: Hops is actually not an HRA uh, product. It was actually started some years ago by a chap called Danny Scroggins, who I believe was and probably still is an active volunteer on the Gloucester-Warwickshire Railway. <laughs> he, he, he just saw that there was no proper rostering system, so he created one and then realised that other railways were going, that's a good system, can we use it? so he started to share it out a bit and then started to develop it and he got to the point where he thought actually there's a business here and he and he left his previous job on no idea what he was doing with something in it and has created this system um hops heri- uh what was it heritage operations processing system i think is what it stands for i may be wrong there um and uh, yeah it's now quite quite widely used, not every heritage rail in the UK uses, uses it, but I, yeah, I do know it is now exported all over the world. I use it uh, for rostering purposes on the Isle Steam Railway, the monthly rosters come out via hops, that's where I know what I've been allocated to do and so on, but it can do much more than just rostering. There's a whole wealth of policies and notes and so on. And now uh, now I use for hops, some competency records, all that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a great system, it is, it is supported, by the hra but yeah uh, we didn't create
2: it corrected i think Steve. now what message do you have any message to town planners and local authorities and at the higher end strategic planning about you know your body and what they can do to, to assist or understand it better
1: i think in a nutshell is absolutely recognized that heritage railways are a vibrant and valuable part of a local area's tourism economy. Even in an area where tourism isn't the primary um, uh, sector, it's still significant. I mean, whilst I said earlier on that most heritage railways are located in rural areas and therefore, by definition, often tourism, tourist-related areas, not all of them are. Um, Take the East Lancashire Railway, which is one of the UK's largest heritage railways. Um, but it's located in what is broadly called the Greater Manchester Conurbations. It's, its main centre is located in Bury. Um, and it's actually not as busy in the summer months as it is in the autumn and particularly the Christmas time. And Christmas time, it's, 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 uh, it's so busy because whilst it will get some tourists visiting it, it's got a, a hinterland of around about five million people in the Greater Manchester and Liverpool area, so uh, it's 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 one of its principal audience really is is local people from about a fifty or seventy mile radius. So that's that's a different approach, and that's massively valuable um, to to that area in, to, in terms of, of developing business and keeping um, money, you know, within those local economies. Whereas other railways, festiniog Kent and East Sussex, Bluebell, North York Moors, North Norfolk, and so on, Gloucester, Warwickshire. You know, even smaller railways like the Launceston or Helston or whatever in, in, in the southwest of, of the UK. You know, let alone Scotland. You know, areas such as Aviemore in the center of Scotland, and Boness and Keneal, um, just outside Edinburgh. You know, these these are uh, tourist related areas. So, to planners, is remember the value. That heritage railways are providing economically and socially and in terms of well-being to their local economies and the money and expertise and knowledge it is bringing that they're bringing in and how other businesses relate to them work off them work with them let alone the supply chains yeah. heritage railways like any other business need services they need parts they need supplies so they are very much integrated into their local economies and i think planners if they don't know that have to know that and have to recognize that in the same way as they would just automatically recognize it about a well-known english heritage or national trust um uh, uh, properties such as a you know a a heritage mansion or something like that that sort of said well they, they seem to be automatically just known about well heritage railways should and must be known about in the same way
0: it might surprise many people, but the heritage transport sector has allowed and encourages the retention of old skills. Can you give some examples?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, very much so, because we are dealing with heritage equipment. Effectively, we're dealing with, with stuff, with equipment, with locomotives, carriages, wagons and so on. That The national network went, well, I don't want that anymore. Discard it. You know, Most of it was scrapped. Um, it's old technology so there's, there's uh, had to be a continuation of heavy mechanical engineering, so if you take the, the engineering side, um, it is uh, training um, young people with a number of apprentice, apprentice schemes going on at uh, rallies around the UK, but it's training people of, of, of all ages and, and male and female and so on in terms of those sorts of engineering skills, and a lot of those will then transfer to other businesses. Now, obviously we, we hope that people who are trained will continue to volunteer or maybe work in the sector, but a lot will, will learn and then transfer to other industries. But their grounding has come from that quite detailed engineering knowledge that is acquired uh, when you train within a heritage rail environment. Now, if you take the infrastructure and building side, you know we're dealing with infrastructure built 100, 150, getting on for 200 years ago in some cases, buildings that have been there similar lengths of time. So there's a lot of knowledge gained. And for example, I know that the, the chairman of Network Rail, Sir Peter Hendy, who, 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 who I know, he has said to me, he said, one of the great things about Heritage Rail is you train people up, whether on an apprenticeship scheme or just from a voluntary perspective. And they recognised, you know what, a career in the railways would be, yeah, that'd be quite interesting. And there are transferable skills and the national sector snap up people who've had a grounding or a training in, in heritage rail. Um, I know that happens. So we maintain a lot of heritage skills, but not just for the sake of it, but because they are transferable.
2: Uh, that's terrific, Steve, in a, in a time of you know, de and the loss of manufacturing sector and the loss of a lot of engineering and fabrication and, and skills. That's a great comeback. And you alluded to before the extension of old, old, old lines. That would surprise a lot of people that the heritage sector is growing in mileage. That
1: that's, uh, must be encouraging. There are two views on this. Uh, across the UK, there's just under 600 miles of preserved lines if you add them all together it, it, it amounts to just under 600 miles now in the current climate there is a school of thought that says actually that's probably enough <laughs> I mean you know they're well heritage rails are well spread around around the UK um and whilst you know I, I paint I hope a you know a positive picture of the heritage rail sector It's it's tough in some areas some Railways are still quite small they haven't got enough volunteers they can't afford to take on paid staff um they they struggle and whilst you know we can support them as much as we can with in various aspects and sometimes i i i look at a, an extension proposal and i think well how justifiable is that in the scheme of things how necessary is it so that you know there are very much two two schools of thought. and another aspect of an extension, there, there there is a belief among some that some hours are already pretty long from a from a visitor perspective, um, and so if you've got a shorter hour, five, seven, eight miles, you know a round trip. If you're if you're a family with young children, you have to think, well, how long are those youngsters, those kids, going to stay patient for, and so on. If it's a round trip of two and a half hours, not sure <laughs> you know, that's necessarily appealing to a young family. It might be to a, you know, an older couple or whatever, uh, or to or people you know, who don't have, have children. So there are different schools of, of thoughts on this. And whilst at the end of the day, yeah, I want to see things preserved and, and taken forward and, and so on, I think there does have to be a slice of realism as to how necessary or viable. It is, but yeah, I know, I know there are schemes. So the one I mentioned earlier, the Rother Valley extension, I can s- absolutely see the sense in that because it connects the Kenton East Sussex Railway to the mainline network, it's a couple of miles long, and that opens up all sorts of new pos- possibilities for that line. And from the local authorities point of view, potentially reduces car traffic into an area of outstanding natural-, natural beauty. So I can absolutely see the sense of that. Other schemes you look at and go, It's almost like extending for the sake of it Um, and I'm not sometimes not sure how how necessary it is.
0: So sometimes um, or quite often I guess some of these old preserved lines interact with the mainstream network services. How is that relationship and what are the benefits that accrue from that?
1: Um, There's about 30 heritage railways that either have a full interchange as in a physical track connection, or an interchange station where there's a, a, a platform crossover. Um, and that's great because the national network is bringing passengers to the heritage railway without people having to get in their cars and so on. Um, and both sides benefit. Her- the national network is gaining additional trade because it's getting more passengers and the heritage railways uh, benefiting because it's opening up a new way of getting that heritage railway um and reducing pressure on car parks and so on and and often the station where uh there may be the interchange and and, and so on <clears throat> uh and not always the main stations and so on so yeah it it, it it works it works very well both ways and a lot of heritage railways do have good relationships with their with their mainline train operating companies and indeed as i mentioned earlier on you know the, the sector generally has got a very good relationship with network rail
2: Steve, many lines have substantial heritage assets. How do the practicalities of operating a line, including the need to comply with oh reconcile with preserving and reusing heritage assets? That must be a, a balancing act sometimes?
1: Yeah, it's constantly a balancing act. Um, the head of non-main line for the Office of Rail and Road, the ORR, who are our regulator, he, has a, he came up with a saying, about three or four years ago. He said, uh, and he still uses his now. he said, the visitor today wants the 1950s or 1940s or Victorian, whatever you want to say, experience, but with 20 to 21 levels of safety. You know, visitors do not expect to travel on a heritage railway and for something you know, unsafe to happen. Um, they expect it to be exactly the same as the level of safety on the national network. So we do have to balance that. And there are, well, I bring it down to, to actually there's three basic tenets that every heritage railway uh, really has to look at. You know, One is this balance between the heritage, the brand, what it is where we're publicizing. So come and visit us because we recreate this era from the 1940s or from the Victorian era and, and then steam locomotives and vintage carriages and so on. So we're balancing that the the brand, the marketing, the the marketing aspect, the heritage aspect. Rather, we then have to balance it with safety. We have to have 2021 levels of safety and we have to follow current regulations, whether it's regulated under uh, all the railway regulations that we have to abide by or the general health and safety at work act and so on. Um, so there's there's all of those aspects and then you balance it against the financial and business imperative so it's simply those three things is a constant balance and sometimes yes, there do have to be compromises Uh, but uh, uh, the mature railways and uh, you know I, I want to say this about every heritage railway and tramway and cliff railway and so on they actually understand the safety prerogatives and a lot of them come up with you know, clever ways of, of saying, well, you're still riding you know, on a on a vintage uh, train and a vintage carriage and so on. You know, they don't necessarily know the modern techniques or the more modern techniques that have been put in place to, to you know, repair, maintain those bits of rolling stock, which are vastly different from the way they might have been done in Victorian times, or some of the modifications that may have been done to, I don't know, braking systems or whatever it may be because they're unseen, Um, but the experience is still the heritage experience. And it's just balancing those areas and UK Heritage Railways are very skilled and increasingly skilled at maintaining that balance.
2: We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.1milegrid.com.au. One question um, that I was going to ask earlier, but we're just coming to the end of the interview now, and I just really wanted to um, touch on this is the obvious question around steam engines requiring coal. Obviously, we're moving into a phase of, um, uh, I guess, essentially phasing out of coal over the next couple of years, or the next, um, you know, five it to might two years. In that, <laughs> might be a bit longer than that, yes. Might be a bit longer than a few years. Jess. What What are the impacts? that this will have? What's the long-term strategy for the HRA? Uh,
1: It's a difficult one to answer at the moment. We've spent a lot of time and energy over the last four years. Actually, pretty much since I, I started very early on, I recognized that coal was a growing issue and we needed to inform and advise and urge UK government and and the regional governments to understand that the value of our sector was very important. We've discussed that a lot over the last um, hour or so. But to maintain that, we have a fuel that to some is not all it could be in the modern environment. And we have pushed very hard that total UK Usage by steam, not just railways, but by traction engines and maritime steam and 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 so on, is only thirty five thousand tons. You know, put that into perspective to the millions of tons that was once burnt in the UK. And I I know that doesn't happen now, but even even today, there's about eight million tons still being burnt at the last remaining coal fired power stations, steel works, cement works, a whole variety of areas. We are minuscule users. Now we have been successful in getting that message through to government to the extent where, certainly for the UK, um, the recent Environment Act, which was only passed about a month ago, uh, nothing was put into that act, which would have pre- prevented us from continuing to burn coal uh, as, a, as a heritage user. Um, conversely, it didn't put anything positive in it about it, which is what we were trying to get, but at least there's nothing prevent, you know, which, which could have been prevented, and that, that, that was a concern um so in the uk we're allowed to in fact we have had words within the house of commons and the house of lords in both houses of parliament in the uk uh saying yeah we recognize heritage theme we don't want to do anything to stop you um operating we recognize your small users you are a valuable part of the visitor economy yeah please carry on um that's all well and good but of course it's getting the coal because as I sit here now, there is precisely one mine left in the whole of the UK. And you know, bearing in mind that um, 100 years or so ago, the UK mined 300 million tonnes of the stuff and was act- actually exporting hundred million tonnes across the world. Um, it's just changed beyond all recognition. And the one remaining mine is due to close at the end of next year. So we have the issue for UK heritage steam of bringing lump coal in from other parts of the world which could be Russia it could be Australia it could be Colombia it could be the US uh, there is a source of good quality lump steam suitable uh, lump coal suitable for steam locomotives, which has been sourced from eastern Russia but right now uh, global markets are in turmoil particularly post-cop 26 uh, so it's really letting letting the dust settle a bit and understand where potential imports will come from but we also have to be very aware of the uh, PR issues and so on and the um, reputational issues of continuing to burn a fossil fuel so a message the HRA has been putting out very strongly to members for the last three or four years is get your environmental credentials in order do not do things which frankly, you know, just is like a you know red rag to a bull. You know, don't chuck out loads of black smoke, fire the locomotive properly. Um get other aspects of your business in shape, ensure, you know, you you you're sustainable in all the other areas, in the retail, the catering and all the other areas and so on. You know, get you know use other things to mitigate against the burning of fossil fuels. You know remember you're you're largely going through green corridors, you know open up the nat- nature side of it and so on. And a number of railways are doing uh, offsets. They're starting to invest in in um, forests and so on to, to, as, as mitigation. So it's taking a responsible and sensible approach and saying, yeah, yeah, we do burn for fossil fuels. But we're minuscule users. We're largely in rural areas where actually the impact on the environment is negligible. And that's recognized by local authorities. And it's, it's just negligible. You know, but by comparison to, you know, car use and van use and lorry use and so on, it's 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 tiny by, by comparison. Um, uh, and, you know, and that's exemplified, for example, by let's say, three national parks, you know, North Yorkshire, Moors. National Park, Exmoor National Park, where the Linton, Linton and Barnstable railways is, and Snowdonia National Park in, in Northwest Wales, they welcome their heritage railways. Yeah, there's there's a few emissions, um, but it's minuscule and it doesn't impact on on that environment anything like road traffic does. So it's getting these messages through, but also understanding. And working hard, and it's something I'm having to do, working hard on thinking, where is the coal going to come from? And how do we get it here? And how do we get it here at a price that heritage railways can afford to pay? And, and we've, we've led the heritage steam sector, working with the Traction Engine Fraternity and Maritime Steam steamboat Association um, to, 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 to work on this. But um, post-Cop 26, it's all a bit of a hiatus let the dust settle and we'll, we'll see where, where this goes. And one other area, and there's a lot of skepticism on this, which I have to share up to a point, is can we produce artificial coal? Is that possible? There are projects working on this. Um, sadly, they're not as far advanced as perhaps some of us would like. Some trials have been good and some haven't, but um, there is a possibility of, 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 of taking that forward.
2: Well, Steve, maybe there's going to be a green hydrogen steam train, but uh, I'll I'll move on. Um, We're coming to the end of the podcast interview, Steve, and we ask our guests if you had an extended time to study, what would uh, the research project
1: be on? What, in relation to Heritage Rail?
2: No, just anything. Anything you would like to research. It doesn't have to to do with uh,
1: your industry. (laughs) <laughs> what would I like to research? Well, I'm not a great researcher. I have to analyze research and so on and I have to interpret it, but I'm not a great researcher myself. Well, what,
2: well, maybe in the in the heritage sector, what would you what areas of research do you think would be useful?
1: Well, right now, as I've already referred to, I need some economic research. I need a UK-wide economic impact study on the value of heritage railways and heritage steam. I also want and need a UK-wide survey on the environmental uh, impact um, of heritage rail and heritage steam so those areas straight away um, you know those are fairly high ticket items in terms of cost because the consultants you have to engage and it's quite a widespread study but there is that sort of um, thing we you know which 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 we could we could definitely do with um, uh, uh, across the heritage rail sector and the heritage steam sector in the UK.
0: And, Steve, how do you refresh and relax? And, again, it doesn't have to be related to HRA or trains. Is there something else that you do outside of work?
1: Um, music. <laughs> Years ago I used to play. I don't play anymore. But, what um, did you play? I used to play the violin and I used to sing. Aww. I was in a church choir. Uh, um,
2: i'm going
0: i'm
1: going a long time you know chess uh, plays the violin too yeah, <laughs> yeah i play
0: the violin and I was in a church choir as well so i've got a lot of similarities. <laughs> <Yeah. things.
1: laughs> I mean, this is when I was a teenager and and i still got the violin and in fact viola as well still got them i probably haven't picked them up for about 30 or 40 years and, and i keep thinking oh, I really should do you know um and um yeah I mean i'm as a teenager or a young kid yeah i used to love it pretty really. i mean it was you know certainly singing was really full. my voice broke so it shows just how long ago that was um but why, when i say music now i then i suppose change and uh it surprises people that i know when i say you know 40 years ago 30 years ago wherever it was i used to be a nightclub dj um i used to love that i was a, had a mobile rig i used to do nightclub work and in the last couple of years much to the interest of my partner who she herself she loves music and she you know loves funk and soul and all that sort of thing and we've got a shared interest in that and a couple of years ago in fact just before covid hit i went out and bought myself a pair of decks and a mixer and actually i sometimes relax just by spinning those tunes that i used to spin <laughs> 35 40 years ago
2: oh, that's wonderful Steve. that's, that's wonderful now now we come to podcast extra steve or culture corner um, something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest? It can be about anything?
1: Um, I'm not a huge television watcher, but I've actually realised that in recent months, and again through COVID, I've probably watched a lot more television than, than perhaps I, I would do normally. And there's a couple of great series on on UK TV um which are heritage rail related or but actually not about the trains themselves it's about the infrastructure um the architecture that britain built <clears throat> great series um fronted by a chap called tim dunn uh <clears throat> who's becoming more and more well known in uk rail circles it, it's actually just looking at the, the infrastructure the the buildings and it's fascinating you know it's the architecture britain built um uh, separate to that i love dramas um you know and things like I, I although there's a series of um, Swedish and Danish series called The Bridge which was actually first broadcast about seven or eight years ago but it's been it's been available on on Netflix and we've sat <laughs> binged watched all that and I just found that brilliant and so different in some ways from from UK drama so um, so sometimes sometimes things things like that. Um, I'm quite a voracious reader as well, generally like fiction but actually a couple of railway books. I picked up um one of which was i can't remember what it is exactly was, was called, but it was about it was a sort of semi-fictional account of the navvies you know the 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 teams of people who built the railways in victorian times um yeah you know a, a, absolutely absolutely fascinating so yeah whilst i read a lot of fiction occasionally i'll pick up those sorts of books as well um and quite like self-help books and Sounds I always come to things quite late. So I was also going to mention a book by, by a guy who I have a huge respect for and interest in from a business perspective. Um, I don't like the term guru, but I suppose some people would call him this chapter, an American chap called Simon Sinek, and he, he uh, published this book about ten years ago called "It Starts with Why." Um, terrific, it's great, and um, yeah, I follow quite a lot of um, his stuff. So yeah, I've got sort of quite quite a quite a wide a wide perspective.
2: Uh, that's a that's a wide mix and Jess what uh what's your podcast extra
0: well I've started another new book um this is one by uh, Dr. Brené Brown who I'm sure will be familiar to a lot of our listeners um it's a book called Atlas of the Heart so it's about um I guess going through all 87 and this is what she's mapped 87 of the emotions and experiences that define what it is to be human so it's um extremely interesting um i've only just started it so i'll have to give a more detailed review perhaps in our next podcast but very very fascinating stuff how about you pete
2: Uh, i've got two jess steam trains today by andrew martin which looks at the contemporary uh uk rail scene and i think steve you you get a mention in that as well and which is which is uh andrew martin he's a very easy writer, and he gets—he's got a deep love of uh, trains, and he brings out so many stories and so many personalities, and and explains the issues uh, involved in related to steam, steam and other uh, heritage assets. And the other Jess is uh, in preparation for this interview. I watched the HRA twenty twenty one annual awards, which is on YouTube, and that goes for about an hour, Steve. I think, and it just shows the quite wide diversity of activities that are undertaken by the, the heritage sector. Uh, Steve, are you feature in that as well?
1: Uh, well indeed I do. Uh, yeah, because they are, as you say, they are the HRA awards for 2021 yeah they had to go online like so much uh, so many things have done normally there. are live events and in fact we're just in the process of planning the live event for 2022 but yeah the 21 ones are still up there on the hra website um or or via via youtube and yeah i mean that's what the awards are about recognizing the huge amount of different things that go on in the heritage rail world
2: fantastic so you've been a wonderful guest thank you very much i've got one final question who's going to win the ashes
1: Oh, well, England will, of course.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> the Aussies aren't looking too good. All right, Chess. <laughs> wonderful to do a podcast with you, as always.
1: Thanks again, Steve. Thanks, My Steve.
0: My pleasure. Thank
1: you, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you.